Before we start today's episode, I want to make two quick corrections for my previous episode. The last dynasty of China, which was overthrown in 1912, is pronounced the Qing dynasty. Also, the treaty that ended World War I was, of course, the Treaty of Versailles, not Paris. I know there's a million treaties of Paris, but this wasn't one of them. Anyway, thanks for joining. We got a great interview coming up. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Thanks. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 28A, an interview on Wilson and the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 with John M. Barry. I'm excited to welcome John M. Barry to the show today. John is a former football coach, journalist, and current distinguished scholar at the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, which I believe is the typical career progression for that sort of job. Yeah, you left out that I was just inducted into the Tulane Athletic Hall of Fame. Well, the Tulane Athletic Hall of Fame, what for? Tell me. Well, I was on the staff of the 1973 team, which is, you know, probably their best team in the last 50 years. And the entire team was inducted. So they (laughs) carried along with with the tidal wave of other people who actually did a lot more than I did. All right. Well, we have a Green Wave Hall of Famer with us today and uh, also the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, which is where we're going to focus our time today. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, My pleasure. I think we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) So we, we know the Great Influenza of 1918 as the Spanish flu. But I understand that's a bit of a misnomer. How did it get that nickname, and do we know where it actually originated from? Uh, We don't know. In my book, I actually advanced uh, the idea that it started in in western Kansas, uh, which got a little traction. I I don't often write (laughs) peer-reviewed scientific uh, journal articles, but I I did write one that actually, you know, still gets cited. but, you know, the book came out in 2004, and there were, of course, other theories, Vietnam, France, China, among them. Uh, the book came out almost 20 years ago. Uh, there's been a lot of work since then on the epidemiology of 1918, including by some people I've collaborated with. Uh, and I, have, I think the U.S. is still a possibility, but I now think it's more likely that it started in China. But, you know, we not only don't know, we will probably never know. Right, right. And I'm curious, what initially made you think Western Kansas and what since then has made you back off and think maybe China? Well, the uh, the first published data about in a deadly influenza outbreak uh, was in a- April 1918. But I talked about this town in Kansas, and I traced it back and actually found uh, in January 1918 was when uh, this deadly outbreak hit that area. And then you could also trace by name uh, several people who went from influenza-infected, pneumonia-infected families, and then they traveled to what is now Fort Riley. Uh 
for, you know, they were drafted or volunteered in the military. And previously that area had been the first known outbreak, uh, widespread outbreak of the disease. And it's still the first known widespread outbreak of the disease. And it made perfect sense, the timing, like 20, you know, 48 hours after these guys arrived in the army camp, influenza started in the army camp and so forth and so on. But there's, you know, again, since then, there, uh, Hong Kong, for example, did not suffer much, in, in, relatively speaking, in 1918, which strongly suggests that mm. they were immunized by an yeah. earlier infection. Uh, that's my main justification for shifting my view to China. You know, New York City is also a possibility. France in 1916 is a possibility. Uh, again, we'll never know. It got the name Spanish influenza because Spain was not at war. And when it hit Spain in the late spring, and this is after it had already erupted in the United States and elsewhere, uh, the Spanish press wrote about it. And the countries who were at war didn't say much about it because they thought it was would depress morale and it picked up the name Spanish influenza. And now we're, we're all familiar with the flu. Flu season comes every year. Some of us get our shots. Some of us don't. It comes and goes. What made the Spanish flu different? What made this one so deadly? Well, it's, you know, not entirely clear what made it so deadly, but it was deadly. Um, many multiples of COVID. Uh, in addition, the most vulnerable population were children under five. The second most vulnerable population was children under 10. Then came young adults in their 20s, was, came third. And the population that was actually most protected was the elderly over 65. Like, Interesting. Close to 95% of the excess mortality was actually people younger than 65. So that was very different. Uh, and again, just the case mortality. Uh, worldwide, the best estimates, I think, say that it killed at least 50 million people and possibly as many as 100 million people. And the world was, you know, less than a quarter of the population of today. So if you, if you adjust for population, that would be the equivalent of 225 to 450 million people today. So, wow. you know, COVID, bad as it is, and it's probably killed at least 15 million people and yeah. very possibly 20 million people, and it's not done. But yeah. that's a tiny fraction of the equivalent of the influenza outbreak in 1918. And what, what did prevention look like back then? Like, were there flu shots yet? No, no. No. Uh, medicine had just very recently become scientific. Yeah. And they had vaccines, but they didn't even know what a virus was. In fact, mm. the definition of a virus came out of research that started in the pandemic, but not until the 1920s. A guy named Thomas Rivers, brilliant guy, uh, yeah. really figured out what a virus was. They knew that there were these very small pathogens, but they weren't sure if they were just like a bacteria, just smaller, or whether they are really different kind of organism, yeah, uh, which they are, yeah. 
you know, a lot of the deaths, probably most of them actually came from secondary bacterial infections. Sure. Uh, they, did develop they did develop vaccines against bacterial infections. If you get in a shot against bacterial pneumonia today, which is highly recommended for everyone, particularly the elderly, yeah. that is a straight line descendant of what was developed back in 1918. Uh, so if you were fortunate enough arguably, to be vaccinated against a bacteria that happened to mount a secondary infection against you, then maybe it gave you some protection, but obviously gave you zero protection against the actual virus. And a lot of people died from the virus itself. And even today, the case fatality rate for a bacterial pneumonia following influenza is probably around eight percent, which is which is pretty high. Uh, it was, of course, it was a lot higher back then. But even today, you're talking about if a comparable pandemic hit, yeah, it, it would dwarf, it would dwarf COVID yeah. in terms of deaths. Do do we have any sense of when the U.S. government and especially President Woodrow Wilson became aware of the flu influenza of the pandemic and what their initial reaction was? Well, they were aware pretty early. Uh, you know, the the war was was you know, totally consuming. Yeah, actually, every leading doctor in the country entered the military. Uh, you know, the uh, they had a very good army surgeon general named William Gorgas, who. Uh, was the leader in cleaning out yellow fever during the construction of the Panama Canal and earlier in Cuba. Uh, and William Welsh, who's arguably the most important figure in the history of American science and is definitely the most important figure in the history of American medicine, he was the dean of the Johns Hopkins Med School. He entered the army, became a colonel. The dean of the University of Michigan Medical School, another you know huge leader, he entered the army. The entire Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research, which is now Rockefeller University, that was incorporated lock, stock, and barrel into the army. <laughs> so the best, you know, the Harvard faculty, they were all in the military, army or navy. The best scientists in the country were all in the military, or practically all of them were. Um, and they had... And, in every prior war, yeah, more people died from disease than from combat. And they were determined that that would not be the case in this war, in, in, you know, in advance of the pandemic. Um, in, in Europe, of course, where the deaths were in the millions, uh, I mean, you know, 10 million, roughly 10 million combatants died, close to that, 20 million total, including civilians. Uh, those numbers did dwarf the deaths from the pandemic in, in Europe, uh, but the U.S. only had a little over 50,000 combat deaths, and, and that was, and the pandemic did exceed those yeah. combat deaths. Uh, so they, they were certainly aware when it hit 
what I said, Fort Riley, Camp Funston in Fort Riley in the spring, and it spread to of the 36 or so biggest army bases in the country, roughly 20 of them got hit in the spring. The spring wave was actually very mild. Uh, it was so mild, there were medical journal articles saying that this looks and smells like influenza, but it's not killing enough people, so it's probably not influenza. But a variant emerged that was both much more transmissible and uh -huh. also more lethal. And that second wave, which hit in the fall, <laughs> the fall of 1918, was deadly. So, you know, the administration was very aware of it. It's not clear exactly when Wilson became aware of it, but he was certainly aware of it by the early fall. Uh, because there was a question of whether or not the, the medical staff actually recommended canceling all shipments of troops to Europe. Wow. Wow. Um, and that didn't get any traction with Wilson. Uh, the second recommendation, I mean, his response was, well, if you die from influence on the ship, so what? It's the equivalent of dying in the front line. Oof. Uh, it happens. Yeah. But the second, they, they had already realized that people who had been infected um, had protection, good immunity, and we're not going to get reinfected, or likely not get reinfected. So the second recommendation of the medical staff was, okay, rearrange your shipments and just send troops that were in army bases where the pandemic had already passed through because they would be safe in terms of the disease. And that made total sense, but Wilson uh, paid no attention to that, uh, you know, really outrageously as far as yeah. um, I can, you know, my view is. I mean, is there an argument that like not only is, is that just so dangerous, but you're now sending people with the flu and they could be infecting the allies and causing as many deaths as they're kind of reinforcing or, or was it not that? I mean, I'm curious how that. Well, how that you know, that wasn't was that much. over there also. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, now, why would any country, with the exception of China, which is still trying to control it, you know, yeah. it's already circulating in your own country. What's the yeah. point of not allowing foreign travelers? And it's just stupid. It interferes with commerce. It's yeah. already here. So, uh, so that wouldn't have been a factor. Yeah. So it sounds like they had variants then, just like today, which I, I didn't know that aspect of the flu, of there being the oh, second yeah. variant. Well, the influenza actually mutates faster than COVID. Yeah. Wow. Everything about influenza moves faster than COVID. Was, were there discussions? Because you mentioned how Spain's the only country that was willing to talk about this flu pandemic. So were there discussions within the government of, like, especially involving Wilson or other folks, of we're not going to talk about this or we're going to actively suppress talking about this? Like, was there some kind of campaign of silence on the government's part? Pretty much, yeah. Um, we had then more effort to control thinking and the media than at any other time in our history, including World War II or the McCarthy period or the Civil War. Um, Congress, this was unrelated to influenza, but influenza sort of fell into that infrastructure. 
uh, Congress had passed a law that made it punishable by 20 years in prison to, quote, utter right, print or publish any disloyal, scarless or abusive language about the government of the United States, unquote. And that law was enforced. A congressman was sentenced to 15 years in the can under that law. Wow. Uh, that law was actually upheld by the Supreme Court. Oliver Wendell Holmes normally considered a, a champion of free speech, wrote the opinion. And there are a couple of phrases from that uh, opinion that still live on. One is clear and present danger. Uh, the uh, <laughs> the other yeah. is that you can't shout fire in a crowded theory theater. Uh, Both of those phrases come out of his opinion uh, upholding that law. (laughs) So based on that, you know, and and the idea of of patriotism and support for the for the war effort that infused every element of the government and largely the country. Uh, you know, many places banned the teaching of German language, sauerkraut became liberty cabbage, things like that. Uh, And it sounds ridiculous, but the reality is Wilson had some concerns about whether or not, you know, let's face it, the largest demographic group in the country was of German descent. Okay. So, you know, would people of German descent fight against Germany? He was, right. there was some concern. Another large ethnic group was Irish. Would Ireland in 1916, you know, launched a rebellion against British rule? Would the Irish fight on the side of Britain? That was another question. So the effort to control thought was very deliberate and uh, very consistently carried out. So as I said, this is a larger structure and influence that kind of fell into that. And as a result, both, and this was largely echoed by local public health leaders and and local mayors and so forth. uh, National public health leaders said things like, this is ordinary influence by another name. Mm-hmm. You know, in uh, in the book, I talk a lot about Philadelphia, uh, sort of a case study, what not to do. And they had this huge Liberty Loan parade plan for September 28th. Influenza was already bad enough that the draft scheduled for two days earlier had been canceled because Army camps were overrun with illness they couldn't take anymore into the camps. Wow, yeah. And if they weren't overrun, they didn't want anybody coming in who would infect them. Right. Uh, So the draft had already been canceled nationally, and this Liberty Loan Parade was going to go forward. And the uh, multiple doctors, you know, were urging the mayor to cancel the parade. They wouldn't do it out of the patriotic fervor and 
you know, just like clockwork, the incubation of influenza is, you know, one to three days, like 48 hours after the parade, influenza exploded in Philadelphia. <laughs> but the press, rather than criticizing the government, by and large, echoed uh, lies, frankly. And, wow. and maybe the, I mean, for example, uh, the Philadelphia, many physicians wrote, talked to reporters in the Philadelphia newspapers, wrote letters to the editor. The reporters wrote stories criticizing the plans to go forward with the parade. The editors killed the stories. Later, when Philadelphia finally canceled belatedly, you know, all public events, closed mm -hmm. schools, closed bars, closed theaters, closed churches, banned funerals, except for the very immediate family, things like that. One of the newspapers actually said, this is not a public health measure. You have no cause for panic or alarm. I mean, how stupid. No, 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 like we're closing all the stuff for funsies. <laughs> Don't worry yeah. about it. I mean, but that, that was actually not so unusual behavior by the media in 1918. Okay. Um, again, out of patriotic fervor. Um, the result, and, and at the same time, Philadelphia's digging mass graves. Literally, you have priests driving horse-drawn carts through the streets, calling upon people to bring out their debt. Oh, my God. So, and they're saying this is not a public health measure. You, have, you know, people knew it yeah. wasn't ordinary influenza. Yeah. So what happened was basically they couldn't, they knew they couldn't believe anything they were being told. Yeah. Uh, so you have the, the fear that is going to be, you know, yeah. natural for anyone facing a disease like this. Imagine... COVID killing right. children and people in their 20s. Yeah. And in numbers that are at least 10 times as many as the deaths that we're currently having. Yeah. Just imagine that. And, you know, there would be reason for fear. And then yeah. on top of that, you're being lied to and told this is nothing to worry about. It's ordinary influenza by another name. So the result of that is you can't believe anything you're being told. You don't know anything. You're left to your own devices. And you get a situation of chaos and alienation. You know, I think ultimately society is based on trust. And without trust, society begins to disintegrate. And, you know, the reality is, and, you know, without overstating it, maybe, um, you know, that you began to see society begin to fray so that there are reports, you know, in most in most crisis situations. People respond with heroism, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, look at healthcare workers in COVID. They're not used to facing infectious disease. You know, there is some concern at the beginning with healthcare workers go to work. And even if they had the courage to show up themselves, there was the concern about their coming home and maybe infecting their kids yeah. or their spouse. Well, in fact, healthcare workers did perform heroically, not only in the United States, but pretty much everywhere around the world. 
uh, people come together. But that was generally not the case in 1918. And I think that was a function of the lies that they were told. You see reports in many places around the country of people actually starving to death because others were afraid to bring them food, including wow. other family members, not wow. only in a big city. Yeah. But you see that in rural areas where family and neighbors are supposed to be everything. Uh, you know, so the, the level of fear was tremendous. Uh, the, and you know, I'm in New Orleans after Katrina, people refused to be rescued unless their pets were taken with them that, you know, they were risking their lives for their pets. Right. And in fact, the coast guard actually had to change their policy on that. Uh, in, in, in Phoenix, when there were rumors spread that dogs were spreading influenza, people started killing their pets. And the newspaper there said Phoenix will soon be dogless. Yeah. You know, so if you have a dog, just imagine what, you know, the emotional impact that, yeah. that that would have and the level of fear it would take to overcome your attachment to your dog. It's almost yeah. inconceivable that you'd kill you, but that's the level of fear that existed in some places. That's insane. I'm, I'm curious, what would people try to do in terms of treatment? You know, like, were there any medicines? Were there snake oil salesmen selling fake cures? You know, was this? Yeah, was there, there, there was all that. Yeah. And uh, even to them, I'm thinking of uh, Trump talking about injecting bleach. Uh, there was actually a physician who wrote an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association who injected hydrogen peroxide into his patients. And what is that, that? That would give them more oxygen in their bloodstream. He, and uh, roughly half his patients died. He actually wrote the article <laughs> and, and, and said and claimed success. That's what he was writing the article for. This is wonderful. Half the patients survived. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, so there were, you know, people did try pretty much everything. Uh, you know, some of it was was based on a good medical logic, um, <laughs> such as you know what today we use convalescent plasma, which in fact mm -hmm. depends on the concentrations, how effective it is. Uh, you know, it did not seem to be very effective early in the pandemic. Uh, there's, in fact, it wasn't. There has been more recent work that suggests if the, the antibodies were had a high enough titer, then maybe they did work and so forth. Um, you know, that that was tried in 1918 uh, with very mixed results. Again, good logic to it at any rate. Uh, a lot of vaccines were developed, but again, they weren't aimed at the virus they were aimed at bacteria yeah uh, you know but basically the only thing you could do was provide support keep people hydrated yeah uh, water and Sweet. so forth yeah how, sorry um how global 
did this flu get? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Like, did it somehow cross the trenches of World War One? Did it infect the Central Powers? Did it get everywhere? Oh, it was, I mean, everywhere. I mean, everywhere. You know, you're talking about 50 to 100 million dead. The U- yeah. U.S. actually did pretty well. There were probably about 675,000 Americans killed. Uh, you know, the population was a lot smaller. It was about a third of the population of what we have now. Uh, but, you know, the the numbers are soft for a lot of the world. India probably could have suffered as many as 20, 25 million deaths in India alone. It's not clear. Uh, the disease was most dangerous in primitive areas where people had never seen influenza virus before. There, You did get some cross-protection if you had been infected earlier by another influenza virus. There was some cross-protection. So in the developed world and, you know, with cities and so forth, uh, where there had been other influenza outbreaks of much less serious virus, uh, the case fatality rate was generally overall about roughly 2%. That's misleading because it was quite different depending on how old you were. If you were in your 20s, the case fatality rate was much higher. Um, For example, Metropolitan Life found that over like 3.25%, 3.26% of all industrial workers aged 20 to 45 died. That's not case fatality, that's fatality. Yeah. So that would mean the case fatality, assuming, you know, a quarter or a third were infected, that would mean the case fatality was probably about 10% for that demographic. Uh, for minors, where you probably already have some problem with uh, your lungs, the same demographic, the case fatality, excuse me, the fatality was over 6%, which means the case fatality was probably 20%. Uh, but again, if you were 65 years old, the case fatality was no lower than it would normally be. You know, it was nothing like that. Uh, but worldwide, in places that had never seen an influenza virus, whether that was a, a village in the middle of the jungle in Africa or an Inuit settlement in Alaska, in some cases, you saw 100% mortality, 100% mortality. Wow. And that would have been probably not so much that the virus killed everyone as it is that everybody got sick at the same time. So nobody could even provide. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it, it was... It was quite severe. It was, again, dwarfed, dwarfed what we're going through with COVID. And COVID's pretty bad. And now, when this virus is happening, Wilson is older. He's in that age group who oddly is, is less susceptible to die, at least. But do we know if he ever caught the flu and if it, yes. if it ever impacted him anyway? Uh, it impacted him quite severely and uh, had major... Uh, ramifications worldwide. There was a third wave in 1919 in uh, Paris, 
and in the middle of the negotiations over the peace treaty, uh, he got sick. It was very clearly influenza. He had 103 temperature, violent coughing fits, uh, you know, abdominal, uh, you know, normally influenza. It's not gastrointestinal. The 1918 virus affected every organ in the body, like COVID. Uh, tremendous neurological impacts, second only to pulmonary impacts. Uh, anyway, uh, Wilson was so ill that uh, initially his, his doctor thought he had been poisoned, but, it, you know, it was pretty clearly influenza. And, you know, it affected his mind. Uh, everybody around him, from Erwin Hoover, who was the White House usher, uh, to Herbert Hoover, obviously the later president who was around then, they said Wilson's mind was never the same after that. Uh, you know, that he couldn't remember in the afternoon what he decided and talked about in the morning. Uh, that is, is, it just wasn't sharp. He wasn't processing, you know, the equivalent of brain fog and so forth, what we now call brain fog. Uh, and prior to his attack, you know, uh, he had insisted in every negotiation uh, on the principles yeah. that he had led the United States into war. And in fact, you know, you probably know, I don't know whether your listeners realize, the U.S. went to war as, quote, an associated power, yeah. unquote, yeah. as opposed to an allied power. Yeah. You know, we had our own agenda in theory, and our agenda was the 14 points, the principles of, of uh, self-government, democracy, and so forth. Make the world safe for democracy. So uh, he had insisted on those in every negotiation, and in fact, had ordered uh, a steamship to get ready to take him back to the United States, he's going to walk out of the conference because he wasn't making much progress. And then all of a sudden, uh, and he insisted on going forward as he was recovering from this, but he was still too sick to get up. He actually negotiated from his sick bed. He uh, had Lloyd George, the British prime minister, and Clemenceau, the French prime minister, in his bedroom negotiating. Clemenceau's nickname was the Tiger. So that'll give you a sense of Clemenceau's personality. And all of a sudden, Wilson caved in on everything except uh, the League, League of Nations, all the principles that the United States had gone to war over, all the principles that had made Wilson a hero around the world. He abandoned them. You know, uh, whether that, you know, you can't say for certain that he wouldn't have done that anyway. He, he lacked physical strength. His mind wasn't functioning. Uh, you know, I, I think it's probable that influenza played a role in that. Uh, as a result, John Maynard Keynes, after the peace conference, called Wilson the greatest fraud on earth. Uh, as a result, you know, roughly 20 members of his senior staff, several of whom went on, like 
to become secretaries of state or assistant secretaries of state gathered together and talked about resigning en masse. Wow. Uh, several of them did end up resigning. Um, in fact, I could read you a letter William Bullitt wrote him after this uh, to give you a sense of the response of the U.S. team. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just I'd give you some names of some of the people who, who you know, Samuel Elliott Morrison, Adolf Burl, Christian Herter, John Foster Dulles, Lincoln Steffens, Walter Lippmann. These are all his staff. I mean, those are some pretty big names in the 20th century. Yeah. So Burl, who was later an assistant secretary of state, wrote Wilson the letter of resignation, quote, I am sorry that you did not fight our fight to the finish and that you had so little faith in the millions of men like myself and every nation who had faith in you. Our government has consented now to deliver the suffering peoples of the world to new oppressions, subjections, and dismemberments, a new century war. Wow, that is harsh. And turns out, unfortunately, to have been true. You know, essentially every historian of the 20th century recognizes that the Versailles Peace Treaty led directly, was a major factor in in the rise of Hitler and World War II. Absolutely. Um, You've done such a great job through this of kind of calling back and, and comparing then to COVID, then to COVID. I'd love to drill into that a bit more. Uh, like when the COVID pandemic started, we saw efforts to close borders and create a vaccine. We had a president, you mentioned this, he pretended it wasn't a big deal, suggested we inject ourselves with disinfectant. On a more human level, we were encouraged to wear masks, social distance, avoid travel or indoor settings. Kind of across the board, how does this compare and contrast to uh, the 1918 flu reaction? You know, what are some of the biggest areas where you're like, this is like how either the federal, state, local, or individual level was similar or radically different? Okay, well, you know, I was involved in the Bush administration in planning the pandemic preparedness and response should one happen. And to a much less degree, I was, you know, in, in during H1N1 swine flu, which of course turned out to be very, very trivial, you know, but in the early days, we didn't know that I was, you know, in conversations with the White House and, and the uh, two lessons that came out of 1918. And, you know, I would push these in uh, basically every meeting I was in or number one, tell the truth, you know, they didn't do that in 1918. People died as a result. And in addition, society began to fray and in some cases almost break down. Uh, I think telling the truth holds things together. Uh, in fact, there was a recent study of 177 countries in COVID. Hmm. And the conclusion was that it didn't matter whether it was an authoritarian country, a communist country, or a democracy. The countries that did better 
were the ones where there was trust in institutions and trust between citizens. Those countries that had that fared quite well. Those countries that did not have that did not do so well. And of course, the United States is one of the worst in that regard. Uh, you know, so that's the truth is central to developing and maintaining trust. You know, so that was one of the lessons, I think, the main lesson from 1918. And unfortunately, we didn't get that in the United States. Uh, a second lesson from 1918, which uh, was not so much my conclusion as the conclusion of some statistical studies, was that what we now call non-pharmaceutical interventions, social distancing and so forth, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that they work. Uh, you know, the trouble has always been sustaining them. You know, we're talking in July, uh, the subvariants BA4 and BA5, particularly BA5, these are not nice subvariants. You know, we are potentially in for a pretty bad next several months. Uh, it's still out there. You know, the thing that worries me by far the most is not so much dying or it killing a lot of people. Although even today, you know, on a, on a case fatality rate, it is, in fact, similar to influenza. But so many more people get sick that right now people are dying at the rate of about 150,000 a year. Yeah. The worst influenza year we've had in the last, basically since 1918, killed 60,000 people. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty scary. But again, the chief concern, or at least mine, isn't this killing somebody, although it is still killing people. It's long COVID and so-called brain fog and cardiovascular, for example, a lot of historians, without really looking at what happened to Wilson, the actual what were clinical symptoms, thought that he had a minor stroke. Everybody recognized that he was disoriented at Versailles in the middle of the peace conference. But they say, well, he had a major stroke later. So what he probably had in, in April 1919 was a minor stroke. It's the other way around. Influenza has like COVID, creates cardiovascular problems. It is much more like, clearly, Ed, he didn't have a stroke in April 1919. Strokes don't cause violent vomiting, violent coughing, and 103, 104 degree fever. Uh, the stroke that he had later was almost certainly a result of influenza, which is a very common complication. And it's also a complication of COVID. You know, cardiovascular problems, neurological problems, uh, you know, even from a mild case of COVID, you know, and that is not linked to age. That is really my concern that you have, you know, certainly tens, probably over 100 million people have been infected probably a good deal more, probably 
you know, the, the numbers look like at least 60 to percent of the population already have been infected uh, asymptomatically or otherwise, and probably more than that at this point. So what is the impact of long COVID? And BA4 and 5, they are not more, you know, milder versions of Omicron. They're actually a little bit nastier than the earlier versions of Omicron. At least that's what the early data suggests. So, yeah, I thank you for scaring me and all my listeners. <laughs> well, it's good, you know. It's good. No, to be I appreciate it. Like I say that in jest. When there's something to be scared of, yeah, you should be scared. Yeah, uh, and you should take precautions. Yeah, and the precautions remain. You know, masks work. Yes. You know, crowded spaces. You know, wear a mask. That yeah. doesn't mean you stop living. Yeah. But, you know, take some precautions while BA5 is circulating. You can always figure out, you know, what it's like in your community. Yeah. And yeah. respond appropriately. How did the flu eventually end in 1918? How did that pandemic eventually end? Well, it was a combination of uh, more variants and uh, natural immunity. Uh, you know, as more and more people became infected, uh, and there was a fourth wave in 1920. Uh, generally, the disease is described as having three waves, and I described it as such in my book because that's the way people at the time described it. But there was what would, have, by any definition, be a fourth wave. I included the data from the fourth wave. I didn't. I didn't call it a fourth wave again because people back then didn't call it a fourth wave. What happened was people just got tired of dealing with it as we got tired of dealing with COVID. So they ignored the fourth wave. But in some cities, it was the deadliest wave. You know, Detroit, Milwaukee, um, I think Kansas City. Uh, but what, whatever. And that, that was in 1920. By 1921, however, the disease returned, the deaths returned to pre-pandemic levels because another variant emerged, which was milder. And the disease and the virus remained, you know, essentially mild like ordinary seasonal influenza. You know, it's a combination of another variant that was less deadly uh, and natural immunity acquired by infection. Uh, and seasonal influenza was a result. Well, we will see when and if COVID ever gets to that point. I think it will. The question is how many iterations it's going to take. Oh, right. If you'd like to hear more from John, please check out The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, uh, or any of his other books, which can be found at johnmberry.com. Thank you so much for your time, John. I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, you're welcome. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, 
You can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll talk to John Milton Cooper, a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of the Pulitzer Prize finalist Woodrow Wilson, a biography about Wilson's progressive legacy. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.